Well, please, as you uh, sit down, do take hold of one of the church Bibles and turn back to uh, Luke chapter 6, page 1033 in the church Bibles. 1033, Luke chapter 6, as we continue this uh, short series through these opening chapters of the book. Kicking against authority is something that most of us do with very little effort. From the cradle to the grave, our our rebel hearts rail against those who think they can tell us what to do. The tantrums of toddlers, the door slamming of teenage years, the stubborn defiance of ageing. Indeed, it's amazing how many of us literally go to our graves rejoicing with Sinatra that we did it my way. I'm always amazed how often Sinatra's hymn to selfishness uh, appears on the music schedules at the local crematoria. Uh, For many, it is the song to go out to. Of course, sometimes you feel that authority needs kicking against. Uh, So managers at the Royal Cornwall Hospital went one audit too far recently. Uh, Apparently, nurses have been asked to keep a record of the number and the approximate cost of boxes of chocolates left by grateful patients. Uh, Needless to say, the chocolate audit hasn't been a huge hit with busy and audit-weary staff. Although presumably the findings will soon form part of a new government league table measuring patient satisfaction. Uh, Never mind morbidity and mortality rates... Who wants a packet of Maltesers, doctor, when you can have a Thornton's Continental physician instead? Of course, it's not just human authority that we kick against, be that the authority of parents or employers or the state. Fundamentally, it is God's authority that we reject. The anti-Christian writer Sam Harris puts it bluntly in his most recent book, we are the final judges of what is good. Otherwise put, we have no king but self. Which is why Luke 6 is such a troubling passage. By his own estimation, Jesus saw his life as the turning point in world history. Something new happened in his coming that changed the past and the future forever. And surprisingly, for us at least, that fundamental change in history became clear on a Jewish Sabbath. Now, we tend to read the Sabbath controversies in the Gospels as little more than desert storms in Middle Eastern teacups. It's much ado about nothing. And admittedly, ancient debates about what you can and can't do on a Saturday don't seem to have the most pressing of relevance for most of us on a Monday morning. And yet it is impossible to read the Bible, isn't it, and not come away thinking this Sabbath business is a big deal. It's interesting that when you read the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath is linked with creation in Exodus 20 and redemption in Deuteronomy 5. So in Exodus 20, God tells the people, remember the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh. So keeping the Sabbath is linked with creation in Exodus 20 and with redemption in Deuteronomy 5. God says, observe the Sabbath 
Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand. See, the goal of creation was the Sabbath rest. The goal of redemption was the rest of the promised land, which the New Testament says ultimately is the rest of heaven. Life, if you like, is all about rest. Not idleness, but wholeness. What the Old Testament calls shalom. A life of right relationships in a world that God has made. And keeping the Sabbath, then, was God's gift to his people. It was a time both to rest and to refocus, for this life is to be enjoyed, even as the promises of the life to come are to be remembered. Now, of course, what was intended to bring tremendous benefit became, for many, a terrible burden. It is ever true that false piety takes God's gracious rule and turns it into an oppressive tyranny. So the promise of future rest became an obsession with present activity. What could you and what couldn't you do on the Sabbath? And so we come to Luke chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Now the Old Testament made provision for such activity. Eating was allowed, harvesting was not. The hungry had the right to eat from their neighbour's field, but the thief was not allowed to reap and therefore steal. But the question of the Pharisees in verse 2 was, could you do this on the Sabbath? And if you see, verse 2 is less of a question and more of an accusation, isn't it? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? See, in their mind at least, Jesus was working and work was forbidden on the Sabbath. Indeed, if you read later Jewish commentary on the Old Testament... It may well be that Jesus was reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. A fourfold violation of Sabbath prohibition of work. You sort of think if you're going to put people's noses out of joint, you may as well do it in style. As so often Jesus responds to people's accusations is to refer to the Old Testament scriptures themselves. And so Jesus asks his own question in verse 3, which, like his accusers, is really a challenge. Have you never read? Now, the form of the question in the original assumes that Jesus is expecting the answer yes. After all, they were the Pharisees. They were the conservative evangelicals of their day, if you like. They knew their Bibles inside out. Of course they had read. But as Jesus goes on to explain, their problem was not with their knowledge of the scriptures, but rather with their understanding of the scriptures. Have you never read? You see, if you read 1 Samuel 21, Jesus says, you will see that Israel's great king did something remarkably similar to me. Now David, you remember, was Israel's true king, chosen by God but rejected by men. Pursued by Saul, David turns to the high priest Ahimelech for help. 
Now, in the first place, he needs something to eat. Nothing fancy, just the basics. He's not looking for anything from Tesco's finest range. He just needs some value bread. But there's a problem. The only bread the priest has is consecrated bread, and ordinarily it was only the priests who could eat that. Yet on this occasion, David and his men ate the consecrated bread, and there is no indication at all in 1 Samuel 21 that in so doing they did anything wrong. Israel's king represents his people and shows them that the law is there to help them. And so sometimes ceremonial restrictions needed to give way to basic human need. And just as David, Israel's king, represented his people, so to Jesus, Israel's greatest king, does the same. See, both David and Jesus, it seems, have the authority to interpret the the force and the intent and the limits of the Old Testament law. As Jesus puts in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It is, of course, quite a remarkable claim. It is either egocentricity on the most monumental scale, or these are the words of one whose authority in history is unrivaled. It's a claim that confronted the Pharisees with an uncomfortable question. Jesus is Lord. Will you submit? See, Jesus' little Bible study had left them on on the horns of a seemingly impossible dilemma. They want to say that Jesus is wrong and to condemn him. But if they do that, Jesus insists that they need to condemn David as well. And the difficulty with that is that there is nothing in the Old Testament text that suggests that what David did was wrong. And by implication, Jesus insists that they should reach the same conclusion about him. So would they accept that they were wrong and submit to Jesus? Or would they press on regardless and reject Jesus' rule? See, I think read this and the same question confronts us, doesn't it? Jesus is Lord. Will we submit? I have to confess that I find Luke 6 more than a little troubling. Why? Well, because it seems possible, like the Pharisees, to be deeply religious and yet profoundly disobedient. That it is possible to know your Bible inside out and yet reject the rule of God's king. The question you have to ask and keep asking is, who is this man? If you don't ask that question, if you don't keep asking that question, you will minimize Jesus' authorities and you will ignore his rule where it is particularly challenging and uncomfortable for you. Now, I know that most of us can trot out the right answers with the best of them. 
But it is one thing to say that Jesus is Lord. It is quite another to live as if that is true. Now the fact that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is really just another way of saying that he is Lord of everything, isn't it? The Sabbath is about God's rest. The rest of creation, the rest of redemption. It is what God intended for his world and it is what God has secured for his world. Wholeness. Shalom, a life of right relationships in the world that God has made. And when you understand that, suddenly an ancient Sabbath controversy couldn't be more pressing and relevant for your life, could it? If Jesus is really Lord of the Sabbath, then it must mean that he is Lord of everything, mustn't it? Why is it then that we think that we can confine his rule to Sunday as if his word has nothing to say about our lives Monday to, Monday to Saturday is he not Lord in the workplace over our finances in our relationships you only have to think of the pressure points in your own life to realise again just how hard it is to live under the Lordship of Christ but make no mistake If Jesus is Lord, he has the right to tell you and me how to live, whether we like it or not. I think it's interesting that when we talk about the Lordship of Christ, we often think about his Lordship exclusively in terms of personal morality. Now, it's right and proper that we think about how we live in terms of the decisions we make in our personal lives, But the Lordship of Christ isn't confined to personal morality. If Jesus is truly Lord of everything, then understanding his Lordship means understanding that he is Lord over every dimension of life. We need an integrated Christian worldview that sees the relevance of Christ's Lordship in the marketplace, in politics, in business, in family, in academia. Why is it that we insist on a sacred, secular divide? See, face to face with Jesus, it can be a very deeply troubling experience. When you you know that you're living the wrong way, be that disobedience in your personal life, or separation, segregation in the whole of your thinking, when you know you're living the wrong way, few of us find it easy to repent and submit to Jesus. Most of us, like the Pharisees here, would rather maintain that we are right and just press on regardless. Jesus is Lord. Lord of everything. Will we submit? And yet, it is one thing for Jesus to make such claims. It's quite another to prove it. Now you read this and you, and you do think, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is wandering around announcing that he is Lord of the Sabbath? Who does he think he is claiming to have authority to interpret the force and intent and limits of the entire Old Testament law? Who does this man think he is? 
I remember a magical moment as a dental student when our embryology, embryology lecture was interrupted by a youthful but smartly dressed man. Our embryology lecturer was a formidable woman, as fearsome as the subject was difficult, and the one thing that you never, ever did was interrupt her lectures. Even if you interrupted, as on this occasion, with great politeness and an apology. Uh, Turning to confront the intruder, our lecturer delivered her withering challenge. And who might you be? Now, what made the moment so sweet, even magical, to a packed lecture theatre full of intimidated students was that we knew what she didn't. The youthful, smartly dressed intruder was none other than the professor of the children's department, the dean of the dental school. Who did he think he was? Well, she soon found out to her embarrassment and to our great delight. Who did Jesus think he was? It's one thing to make such extraordinary claims, it's quite another to prove them. And so you come to Sabbath controversy number two, verse six. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. Now the tension is clearly rising. Previous pretense at open-minded investigation has been replaced with brooding brooding hostility, verse seven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now remember, keeping the Sabbath was not some arbitrary rule laid down by a heavenly killjoy. The Sabbath was God's gift to his people, a time both to rest and to refocus. This life was to be enjoyed, even as the promises of the life to come were to be remembered. But again, what for many... Again, for many, what constituted unlawful activity in the present became more important than considering the joyful rest of the future. There were six days for work, so unless you were about to die, you could get healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. And so the scene is set. Jesus is teaching, verse 6, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. It was hardly life or death, was it? And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were watching. Would Jesus heal on the Sabbath or not? I do note in passing, will you, that there seems little doubt in the minds even of Jesus' opponents about his ability to perform the miraculous. They didn't question his ability, but rather his probity. But verse 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And at that point, you could probably have heard a pin drop. 
the tensions rising, that the Pharisees are looking, the man standing and Jesus knowing. Verse 9, his searching question. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? And so the word of God penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is amazing, isn't it, that in only a few words, Jesus reveals his care and their callousness. He would rather do good. They would prefer to do evil. He came to save life and they would rather destroy it. And verse 10, he looked around at them all. He looked at those who even in the name of religion reject God's rule, at those who imagine that they are the final judges of what is good. He looks round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. He merely spoke and it was so. A shriveled hand completely restored before their eyes. And so they did what? They were utterly amazed. They were astounded. They were broken and humbled before the one who has authority to even do that. No. Verse 11, they were furious. Or more literally, they were filled with mindless rage. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. See, Jesus really is Lord. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the whole of life. The question is whether we will bow the knee. Let me say that if you're not a committed follower of Jesus, but, but you're weighing up what you think, is yours a genuine, open-minded inquiry? Or are you actually looking for a reason to reject Jesus? It is astonishing how even intelligent people sometimes resort to an irrational and angry rejection of Jesus when they realize the implications his claims have on their life. See, when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel and they say to me, well, I understand what you're saying, but actually I think I live quite a good life. I know that they haven't understood the gospel. When I explain the gospel to somebody and they say, I don't think you understand the implications this has for my life. Yes. Now you understand. Of course, it's not for me to say whether your inquiry is genuine or not. But a passage like this at least raises the question, doesn't it? For it seems that you can be respectable. Moral, even deeply religious, and still look for ways to reject Jesus.
But then I guess for many of us, the majority of us who are here this morning, we we would call ourselves committed followers of Jesus. And I suppose the question for us is, if we are ready to trust Jesus as our saviour, why so often do we refuse to submit to him as our Lord? The Bible seems to say that you can't do one without the other. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of everything. So will we submit to him in our thinking and our living? If Jesus is truly Lord, if he is Lord of everything, it will profoundly impact my personal morality, won't it? How could it do otherwise? And of course that is immensely costly, for most of us would rather do it my way. But the Lordship of Christ doesn't only affect my personal morality, it affects the whole of life. It has implications for everything, for family, for work, for play, for education, for politics, for technology, for environment, for creativity. And wrestling to integrate the Lordship of Christ in the whole of life is a lifelong responsibility for every believer. A responsibility that is both difficult, challenging and exciting. See, the challenge of Christ's Lordship is profoundly uncomfortable. It's why most of us are tempted to compromise and to compartmentalise. We compromise in areas of personal morality and we compartmentalise when it comes to integrating Christ's Lordship over the whole of life. We compromise whenever we don't live God's way. We compartmentalise when we separate life into the sacred and the secular. You know, here is my relationship with Jesus. Don't trouble with me. Don't trouble me with how it fits into the rest of his world. That, it seems to me, is the challenge of this passage. But you know, there is an encouragement here too. If Jesus really is Lord, he can both give life and direct life. He is both the saviour we need and the Lord that we can follow. See, why is it that when we think of following Jesus, we always imagine that our lives will become duller and smaller and impoverished? Why? Jesus came to save life, didn't he? Not to destroy it. You know, if Jesus really is Lord, will we not trust that in him, far from destroying our lives, we will save them? And we will discover that even amidst all the difficulties of this world, our lives have become fuller and bigger and richer because Jesus really is Lord. Well, let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge before you that you truly are Lord 
and pray that you would grant us true repentance. May we bow the knee before you and know that in you life in all its fullness is found. For your name's sake. Amen.